Welcome to the inaugural episode of Coronavirus The Truth with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. We are also the co-hosts of the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast, and you can find this new show's episode on that website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. And please subscribe to Coronavirus The Truth on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Over the past few weeks, dozens of people have reached out to us for answers about COVID-19. They're scared and they cannot separate fact from fiction. They're not sure where to turn to for truth. They sense panic, with stores running out of stock, schools and businesses closing, and social media and news outlets talking 24 hours a day about COVID-19. They worry that they and their loved ones will become infected by this virus and die. At the same time, they read the statistics in the context of the seasonal flu. As of today, there have been 3,774 cases of COVID-19 in the United States, with 69 deaths. In contrast, they know that the CDC estimates that there have been at least 36 million illnesses from seasonal influenza this year, causing approximately 22,000 deaths in the United States. They recognize that the numbers for COVID-19 are going to rise rapidly over the next month, but it seems that even if the problem gets hundreds of times worse, given the numbers, our nation should be able to weather the storm. They're not sure what's going on. They want clear, factual, and unemotional answers to questions like, how scared should we be of the coronavirus? Why is the CDC suggesting people stay home? Should I get tested for COVID-19? When is a vaccine coming? These are some of the topics we'll be covering today and every week on this podcast. Robbie, Throughout your career as a physician, Kaiser Permanente CEO, and Stanford University professor, you've been a national thought leader. Other healthcare leaders from across the nation have looked to you to combine your expertise in clinical quality and business savvy. Your book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, was a Washington Post bestseller. You've written extensively for Forbes, Vox, Harvard Business Review, New England Journal of Medicine, LA Times, and USA Today. As the CEO, you led Kaiser Permanente during other epidemics like SARS, MERS, swine flu, and even Ebola. You continue to lead as our nation grapples with a growing healthcare quality and affordability crisis. Given your background, people often turn to you for insights into the clinical and business sides of medicine. COVID-19 poses both medical and financial challenges for our nation. I can't think of a better individual to interview on this massive challenge. On our Fixing Healthcare podcast, we've been a strong team. My role has been to bring the voice of the patient and the businessman to the discussion and the debate. It's been lacking on much of the coronavirus conversation to date. As a small business CEO in Iowa of Executive Podcast Solutions, I can see how the current set of fears is impacting people. I've gone into stores in my neighborhood in Iowa where everything scary seems to happen last that have run out of toilet paper and are running low on canned food. I have colleagues who've shut down their businesses with all their employees working from home. I have friends who are restaurateurs who plan to stop serving food for the next month or two or potentially longer. They read about what is happening in places like Italy and don't want to harm their customers or their staff. Almost no one is sure about what is the right thing to do. My sense is that the combination of nonstop news and constant social media has generated more information and data than people can process but not as much clarity and understanding as they seek or need. 
given our success on the Fixing Healthcare podcast, I'm optimistic we can provide not only the synthesis and perspective they need, but also know we will tell listeners the truth about the areas in which answers do not yet exist. Robbie, I'm looking forward to this discussion today. Me too, Jeremy. Let's get going. So my first question for you is, what is coronavirus? How does it spread? And who's at greatest risk? Coronavirus is an entire family of viruses. They get their name from their image under a microscope. You may think back to when you were a child, you drew the sun with the lines coming out of it. Those are the corona, where you can think of a crown on a king's head with points. Those are corona. These viruses all have these pointed proteins that stick out from them, which is how they manage to penetrate into the human cells. The viruses span a large number of diseases, everything from the common cold at one end to MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, at the other end, one with very low lethality and the other two much higher, thought to be 11% and 35%. All of the coronaviruses come out of animal species. COVID-19 is thought to have begun in bats to then have been transferred through some other intermediate animal, probably in one of the so-called wet markets in China. But transmission now happens from human to human. It can happen in one of two ways. It can come through air droplets when people sneeze or cough, expelling the virus with a little bit of moisture and having that air droplet inhaled, breathed in through the nose or the mouth by someone else infecting their upper airway. Or it can happen on hands where people will touch their nose or mouth and either touch a surface or shake hands with someone else, transmitting the virus as a consequence of that. The people at greatest risk are those who seem to have compromised immune systems. This can be based upon age. The average age of death in Italy, as an example, was over 80. Or it can be based upon diseases like diabetes that impact our ability to fend off problems. Or it can happen because we have a compromised pulmonary, a lung, or cardiac heart problem and difficulty. The good news, unlike some other epidemics in the past, is that children and young adults seem to be relatively spared from this disease. So it tends to be a problem for older individuals, those with a variety of chronic illnesses. The NBA suspended its season, MLB, every other major sports organization, major conference, and everything like that is getting canceled or postponed right now. Um, that's kind of scary. Do you think that's overkill, or do you think that's the appropriate thing to do right now? And how effective do you think all of those cancellations will be? Uh, and ultimately, how do we stop the spread of this or any 
new virus. What listeners have to understand is that in general, physicians don't have effective treatments once patients have the disease. Almost all the efforts that doctors do is to minimize transmission or developing the disease in the first place. The best way to do that is vaccination. Measles is a great example. This is a highly, highly contagious disease, or for that matter, smallpox, another very contagious disease. And we've been able to develop vaccines to fully protect patients who get one or both. Unfortunately, when it comes to COVID-19, we will not have a vaccine at least for a year. At least that's based upon the opinions of the experts who are developing it. Remember, a vaccine has to be not only developed, but it has to be tested and proven safe. And that's not going to solve the short-term problem ahead of us. The second way one contains a virus is being able to identify the very first few people who get it and the people around them who come in contact and then isolate these individuals, to quarantine these individuals. That's what happened, you may remember, a little while ago uh, with the measles in Disneyland. That's how we were able to contain SARS, MERS, and for that matter, Ebola. These are very deadly diseases. Ebola has a mortality somewhere between 25 and 75%, maybe as high as 90%. And we were able to contain it by this process of finding people very early. The challenge when it comes to COVID-19 is we missed the opportunity. We dropped the ball. We did that because we did not have the necessary testing to be able to identify those first few individuals and be able to find their direct contacts. And by the time we realized as a nation what was happening, it had spread so wide and so many people had been exposed that it would be just impossible to go case by case by case. So the response that we're doing is the only thing that we can do to be able to do several things. One is to minimize the spread by not really social isolation. We don't want people to be alone, but by being able to have social distancing to make sure that we don't come in direct contact with people who are infected to make sure we don't find ourselves in, in crowded rooms, to find ourselves at a basketball game. An LA game could have uh, 10,000 people and a few very infected people could immediately spread it far and wide, which is why these types of large gatherings have now been either ended and increasingly being prohibited. We're even seeing this in states like Illinois and Ohio that this weekend the governor said that the restaurants would have to close down and the bars because these are other locations where large numbers of people gather and can easily spread the virus. 
Now, remember, you said in your introductory comments, Jeremy, that we've seen in the flu 10, 20, 30 million people developing it this year. We've seen 20,000, in some years, by the way, 30, 40, 50,000 people die from the flu. So it's not as though we can make this virus disappear any more than we can make the flu virus disappear. But what we don't want to see is a tall spike in incidence in a very short amount of time. Because that will now overwhelm the system and it will even more rapidly spread the virus. The phrase that's being used in the media is we want to flatten the curve rather than seeing this big spike happen over the span of, let's say, two months. If that number of people are going to get infected, but it can happen over four or six months, that will allow us to have adequate hospital resources, adequate physician resources, adequate approaches to managing patients who develop the disease so that we can minimize the impact that it's going to have. That's the solution that we have right now. It's not containment, by which I mean we can't eliminate the disease entirely, but what we can do is minimize the risk to patients, particularly those who are at greatest risk, the elderly and those with chronic disease. So I was not alive in the Spanish flu, um, obviously, but I do remember SARS and swine flu, and I don't ever remember things shutting down like this, uh, restaurants and bars, or and, and they certainly don't do it for the flu. Why now? Why this? What makes this one special? Is it because of that concern about the spike utilizing all of our healthcare resources, or or, or why this one? So each of the examples you gave are slightly different. So when it comes to MERS and SARS, we were able, in that middle second approach, the containment, to identify the people who developed the problem, find their contacts, isolate everyone, and never let the disease spread. That is why it was a relatively small impact by the way, as was Ebola, at least in the United States. The Spanish flu, way back at the early part of the 20th century, we did not have a means of doing that, and quite a number of people became infected. In that particular episode, one of the biggest problems was it very much impacted younger people, young adults, children, in fact, there's a possibility, none of this has been proven, but a possibility that actually in the Spanish flu, much of the problem came from people's immune system reacting to the virus. So those who were the healthiest often had the greatest symptoms and chance of dying. Here we have exactly the opposite. So in this case, we can't contain it. The horse is out of the barn. We can't get the horse back inside, but we can make sure that the horse at least stays on the property within the fenced in areas. And then we can, having controlled it, minimize the problems. 
then retrieve the horse if you want to think of it that way, and ultimately walk it back to the barn. Containment would have been a better solution. We missed the chance, and we missed it for one reason and one reason only. We were not prepared to do the screening that was necessary, and we reacted to the problem way too late. Do we know anything yet about immunity? If you've had it and recovered, can you get it again? And if so, in what kind of a time frame? Do we have any of that kind of information yet? Unfortunately, there is far more than we do not know about this virus than we do. As hard as it is to believe, we can't even be sure how many people have had it. We've only done in the United States 7,000 tests. Remember, that's less than South Korea does every single day. With only 7,000 tests, and we're only testing the people who showed the greatest number of symptoms, we can't be sure how lethal this disease is. This data out of Italy that says the mortality could be as high as 5%, but remember, their average age was in the 80s. This data out of South Korea, it says it could be approximately half of 1%. That's a 10-time-fold difference. We just don't know. We don't know whether this is going to be a seasonal virus or a continuous virus. And what I mean by that is that the flu tends to die out once the weather gets warm. It's a winter disease. You see it actually in July, August, and September in South America, Australia, because that's their winter. And then it migrates north into North America in our winter, which is going to be six months later. For all we know about COVID-19, it may not have a seasonality, or it might. We can't be sure. Every virus mutates and changes. The question is, will that mutation and changing make the virus worse, more aggressive, easier to catch, or not? We can't be sure. And the immunity you're asking about, Jeremy, reflects that. Because as long as the virus stays pretty much the same, our immunity is pretty good. It's why in some years, flu seasons are relatively mild. That, of course, combined with the vaccine. But people who have been exposed to a similar influenza virus tend to have a minimally dangerous disease. And it's in those years... You may remember the H1N1, a time when the virus was very different, that we saw a large number of people suffering severe problems with a higher mortality sitting in play. We just don't know all of those answers. But I want to stress for listeners one key point, Jeremy, and that is that when we say we don't know, the natural human response is to think, oh, that's bad. Oh, if we don't know, it could be 10 times more terrible. We don't know means we don't know. Things could be better than we otherwise believe, the same or worse. We don't know means we just can't get ahead and we should be prepared for all the possibilities, both those that are better and those that are worse. So I'll be, I'll be transparent with you when I say, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I went from we're going to make it through it, not being worried at all to, you know, I, I live in Iowa. Like I said, things tend to happen here last. 
Um, we tend to be a pretty sheltered and safe place. But then, boom, we have some cases in our county that I live in. And now, I mean, instantaneously, you go to the grocery store, you go to anywhere we're running out of toilet paper, hand sanitizers sold out. People are freaking out. And the part that worries me more, I mean, obviously, the virus is scary and the strain on the healthcare is scary. But as a small business owner and as a, uh, a consumer, I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about what are people going to do if they panic? And I'm worried about the strain on the healthcare system if hospitals and stuff have to, you know, turn people away. And and what are your thoughts around some of these fears? And are they reasonable fears? Or, or, or how does someone as experienced as you think about that? The first thing I believe is that the worst thing that can happen is panic. And that's a little bit of what you're describing. In panic times, people start hoarding things. In panic times, you see a lot of the economic collapse that we're seeing right now. Panic is, I think, the greatest fear we have. Having said that, you raised quite a number of points that are crucial that we need to fully understand. One example of that is going to be around the hospitals. Today, if you take the worst projections or you look at the Italian experience as opposed to the South Korean or the Hong Kong or the Singaporean, if you take the Italian experience, what you saw is that the hospital system was overwhelmed. But they don't have the same amount of infrastructure as we do. We learn from their experience so we've been able to promote this more social distance than they were able to do. The other thing about it is that we understand that we have to really protect the doctors and nurses who will be taking care of these patients because if they get sick and now you have more patients and fewer physicians and fewer nurses, you simply can't get the care. And it's another problem because you need the appropriate masks. They're called N95s. They prevent these droplets from coming in around the edges, particularly from the sides of the mask. So is it a, is it a danger? Of course it's a danger. But having said that, if we can do the things that we're capable of doing, slowing it down, that's going to be a big opportunity. Now, I want to stress something for the listeners because I'm always amazed when I look at a TV screen or social media and people are counting. We went from 62 deaths to 69 deaths. Or we went from 4,000 people to 5,000 people. There is an important part of that, which is that the speed and rapidity of growth in numbers does give us a sense of how rapidly the increase is happening. But remember, again, what you started with around the flu. Here you're talking about 20,000 deaths. Here you're talking about 30 million people having the disease. Why should we expect that coronavirus won't have some of the same consequences as the flu? And why would we be so much more panicked about it when I don't think I saw a single newspaper headline about the flu for the three months that all of that 
medical issues were happening. I've read about people who are trying to personally benefit by buying up all the hand sanitizers or hoarding all the masks. Panic and fear is the big, from my perspective, risk. There is a pretty good plan in place if people will follow it, if they'll keep their social distance. You know, one of the big challenges, Jeremy, is that there's almost no difference between an initial flu symptom and a COVID-19 symptom. Both have upper respiratory issues, sore throats, both can have some fever, lethargy. That's why the testing is so necessary to separate the diseases from each other. But for listeners, if you're feeling these symptoms, you should contact your physician. I'm hoping the physician can provide information based upon your age, your associated chronic diseases, whether you're having problems consistent with that infection having moved down into your lung, trouble breathing, pain with breathing. These are the kinds of things that worry us. And my belief is we need to actually test all the people, not by having them come to the ED or the hospital, even the office, finding a way to do a drive-through type screening that's been done elsewhere, that's starting to be done in the United States, so we can know exactly what's happening, how many people have the disease, how severe is it, what's the complication rate, how many people get hospitalized, what's the mortality. And again, I want to go back to that same theme. When I start comparing it to flu, what I see is a panic on COVID-19 rather than an uncertainty for which we try to get as much data as possible. Once we have the information in a future show, I can start to answer your question about how concerned you should be. At this point, my sense is we should be concerned, but we should be taking the steps that we know will help diminish the problem, ones that are happening by minimizing the gathering of people, ones that are happening by individuals self-quarantining when they develop symptoms, ones that are happening by patients when they develop symptoms, contacting the physician who can decide about getting the testing, making sure we increase the testing, understand what's happening. And I would say the same thing's true for the financial markets. You know, what we're seeing right now, if we can proceed as we have the possibility, is this will be a transition for a few months, whether it's three months or four months or five months, the exact number of months, we can't be sure. We need to do some things to protect Americans from the financial side during the transition. We need to make sure, as legislation is happening now in Congress, that people have sick leave benefits. Because if they go to work because they have to earn the money because they don't have sick leave, they will contaminate a lot of people. And it's in the interest of all of us to make sure that adequate sick leave is available to all Americans, free testing is available to all Americans, 
And for businesses like yours, the small businesses, 46% of the American economy is small businesses. We have to make sure we provide the loans and the financial relief that they need. This is a transition part that we have to fill in the dirt so that the ride is less bumpy and smoother going forward. I believe we have things that we can do. Nothing is guaranteed. But if we do those things, our chances of coming out healthy on the other side are dramatically higher. I want to kind of pick apart a little bit about what you said. I mean, you write a lot about the psychology of fear. What makes not just coronavirus, but any the concept of any pandemic so terrifying to so many people? And again, like with the hoarding, why toilet paper? Why is that the big item when... I mean, this this disease doesn't even give you diarrhea or anything. Like, what? Can you talk a little bit about not only the psychology behind that, but uh, are you scared at all? And if so, how scared are you? What concerns you most? Well, let me make sure for the listeners we clarify. Actually, there is some GI symptoms involved in about ten percent of patients with uh, COVID nineteen. In fact, one of the differentiators from the flu is that the flu essentially never does give you the GI symptoms, and they can happen with COVID-19. So just to make sure, as for the listeners who read elsewhere, it can happen. But that's not the reason for the toilet paper. It's just a panic that says, oh my gosh, if I'm confined to the house and can't get out, what do I absolutely need? And it's going to be food and toilet supplies. So that's why I think you're seeing some of this happening, but it's hard to imagine with this particular virus that that would be our national response. It's just going to be far more severe than the likely implications from a medical perspective are. Avoiding the large gatherings, encouraging people to keep a safe distance, and ensuring that people who have symptoms stay inside. And by the way, avoid family members. So if they can sleep in a different room, eat in a different place, that's going to be really good. Those are the things that need to sit in play. In terms of myself, uh, I'm not panicking at all. I think that there are things that we can do. I will say in quotes, if I were to panic, I'd panic over the panic. I'd panic over the fact that if people... Don't do the things that we know we can do. We don't do it soon and now, and we continue to stay behind the curve. Then what we can know for certain is that the virus will grow and grow and grow. Do the things that we can do now, and we have a good chance of being able to address the problem. And again, for the listeners, I want to make sure they've heard this. It's not going to mean that we're not going to see more cases and more deaths. It's going to grow exponentially as does the flu. On the other hand, what it says is that there will be an end in sight and that in the transition, we will not overwhelm the healthcare system, hospitals, doctors, respirators, clinical care, the things, by the way, that are also needed for the flu. The question you pose, though, is why do we become so fearful And the answer is that it's built into our brains. There's a part of our brain called the amygdala. It has the fancy name of the fear center. And when that gets stimulated, 
we have a change in perception that causes us to behave in ways that are somewhat irrational. There's an entire article that I wrote for Vox on this subject, being able to show that in neurobiological studies, when you actually look inside the brain, you can watch this process happen so that perception changes. And that's what I believe is going on right now. I think that as a nation, we have a level of fear that is appropriate to examine, but not appropriate to panic over. And it's a little bit, you could say, like walking down a dark alley at night and you hear a noise and your body reacts intently to it and you start seeing things that aren't there. That is my big concern, Jeremy. Again, for the listeners, it's not as though I am saying it's not an issue that needs to be addressed. I'm well aware of the data that says the mortality could be significantly greater than the flu. The risk to hospitals could be major as they happened in Italy. And I simultaneously have evidence from places like South Korea and other areas where they've put in place the kinds of changes that are necessary to be able to minimize the spread of the disease, to be able to flatten the curve. And my encouragement to all is to adhere to those and to support each other in the process, to wash our hands, to minimize picking up the virus from someone else, to make sure we sneeze into our elbows if we have a cough or a sneeze, to self-isolate if we have any of the symptoms, the fevers, the runny nose, the upper respiratory infection, to be able to do the things that we know to preserve our immunity by sleeping well and eating well. And again, I would encourage people to avoid total social isolation, but to be able to maintain social distancing. Robbie, you just touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think, you know, the last question I have for you is when when should people expect to see an end in sight in terms of sporting events and conferences and and uh, you know, restaurants being closed? What when can we start to return to a normalcy, do you think? I don't think anyone can answer that question because it is so multifactorial. We don't understand fully this virus. We don't know whether it's going to be seasonal or not. We don't know how much people will comply with the recommendations that sit in place. If we're able to maintain the social distance, if people at the first sign of any symptom are going to self-isolate and quarantine and contact their physician and get tested, if enough tests become available that we can start to understand what's going on, if we can create the personal protection that doctors and nurses need so that we have our full staff in the hospitals, we may see this whole process end, and I will say in quotes, relatively soon. You know, when the government says eight weeks, you know it's going to be more than eight weeks because they're going to give you a minimum number that sits in play. But whether it's 12 or 16, it's not most likely going to be a year or longer than that. 
It will be a contained time that we will then be able to go back more towards a normal way of being. And my hope in this process, Jeremy, is that we don't destroy ourselves during this transition. I hope that we protect the livelihoods of all people to make sure that they have the sick leave protection they need. I think we preserve the health of all people by making sure they can get access to free testing so that they don't go to work sick, so that they don't infect other people. If we're able to do those things, if we're able to provide the loans to businesses, if we're able to fill in the gaps underneath the problem that exists, it won't be a totally smooth ride. But we can do very well. If I knew exactly how the virus was going to behave and how people were going to behave and how business was going to behave, I could give you a definitive answer. The thing that I do know is that if together we all work as soon as possible for the interests of all, we have our best chance of coming out with the least amount of damage. Well, Robbie, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I, uh, I hope uh, our listeners learned as much as I did. I look forward to next week when we'll see what else has changed. I'll be able to provide you with some updates on what we've learned, on what we now know about the transmissibility, the lethality, the opportunities to minimize the impact. I'm hopeful that the financial world will stabilize a little bit between now and then. I'm hoping that we will have demonstrated the ability to smooth out the curve, but I'll update listeners a week from now. If people want some more information, they can go to my website, robertpearlmd.com, or they can go to the Fixing Healthcare podcast website, and there they can submit any questions they might have about the disease. If I don't have the answers, I'll find the experts who do. And if they have ideas, topics they'd like us to cover on this podcast series, which will keep going until there is an end to the problems that exist today relative to this virus, please leave it there. Jeremy and I will read them all and we'll try to find ways to provide the information that our listeners desire. Let me thank all the listeners for participating in the show. Let me thank you, Jeremy, for asking the questions on behalf of the patients. This is a challenge that together we need to face as a nation and our best chance of success is to do it together. I look forward to next week updating listeners on all that we will have learned between now and then. Thank you.